Lincoln's WD-40 special is to guarantee performance out of this race car. Whoa! That is one heck of a video. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? It does. Whoa. How exciting. Welcome, Gary, to the show Business Uncorked. And and I and I can I've I've watched that video probably four to six times trying to get the timing right and everything. I mean, what a way to open the show and what a tribute to the work that you do, seriously. But from the bottom of my heart, thank you. You are a blessing. Oh, thank you. It's uh it's not about me, as you know, it's about the wonderful yep. tribe of people that I have at WD forty. But I tell you what, that that video does give you goosebumps. I, I don't want to be a passenger in that car. <laughs> oh, <there he> <laughs> Actually, I would like to be a passenger in that car. <laughs> no kidding. So Lisa, so, Gary, go ahead with your intro and then I want to kind of build on it. So yeah. So Gary, um, I just want to take you back in time. I want to put you in the DeLorean machine and, and take us back in time to when you were a little boy. And what was the first um, thing that comes to your mind right now that probably was the, the story that had the most impact on your life growing up and as an adult that really gave you the ability to lead the way that you lead? Oh, wow. Um, Lisa, there's probably more than one. Um, but I, at the age of five or six, I actually worked on a milk truck in Sydney, Australia. And uh, I used to get up early every morning and um, work uh, delivering milk to milk to the doors of people in, in the yeah. local neighborhood. Um, and I think, you know, my dad worked for the same company for 50 years and and he really, you know, had a, had a, had a real... Uh, a real commitment to a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. And if you treat people with respect and dignity, you know, you, there's, there's pretty much you're going to be able to do the right thing. So I think the value of, um, of being able to help, uh, whether it was that or delivering papers or what it was, I think that was really important to me and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when you first started with with WD forty, and for those of you who don't know the history of W forty, WD forty got its name by water displacement. Uh, you forty times until you found the right one, and that's how WD forty was uh, discovered, or the name was discovered. But when you started as CEO in nineteen ninety seven, I mean, you had a big challenge to overcome. First of all, the company, I mean, was doing very well at. 250 million, correct, at the time? Market cap was about 250 million. Our yeah. revenue was just under 100 million. Yeah, and engagement was at about 50%, if I remember correctly. And correct. then now, you know, fast forward, we're in our DeLorean machine again, and we're aging ourselves in the back to the future, but we're going back into the future. And, you know, it's 2020. You know, you're in 176 different countries. Your market cap is 2.5 billion. But what's really, really amazing and outstanding to your leadership and your tribe is the fact that your employee engagement is sitting at 93%. Yeah, and 90, I think 98% of our tribe say they love to tell people they work at WD-40 company. But even better than that, 97% say they respect their coach. And their coach is kind of their boss. Everybody else calls people bosses. We don't have managers at the company. We have coaches. 
because our right. job is to help coach our, our tribe members to step into the best version of their personal self. So, yeah, um, yeah it's there's no better time than in this coronavirus time to have a high employee engagement because uh, yeah. we really need it. Yeah, and absolutely. Your, and your glass door rating is, uh, Gary, you know, you've got a glass, you know, for those of us that look at these external indexes like Glassdoor, I think you've got a 98% approval rating last time I looked. I mean, it's um, it's it's huge. I mean, you guys have, I, I, you know, I teach a, um, a culture class at, um, at both at the executive MBA level level and at the professional development level in a couple of places. And uh, I use, uh, I, I get the, the participants to discover both companies that are leading towards uh, toxic and leading towards thriving. I'm going to put WD-40 in the thriving list because I think these people at Harvard and other places, the people that don't know you very well, because we all have WD-40 in our, in our, somewhere in our house or in our shops or in our garages, <laughs> but WD-40 is incredible. I mean, you have built, and like, it's not just, you know, we're not just sort of uh, pumping your tires here. It's like all the evidence and the data is there, not only in terms of these numbers like engagement and glass door scores and coach approval scores and recommending to a friend, but your financial performance is consistently right up there in a highly sustainable way in just continually outstanding performance. I mean, so what the heck? I mean, if you kind of had to, you know, as you kind of just sort of someone asked you to sort of say, what have been your key ingredients? What would you say have been some of the things that have made that up, Gary? What, what have you cobbled together to really create this phenomenal culture? Well, I, I have a simple algorithm, Lorne, and I'll give I'll share it with everybody. Culture equals, and the equal sign means happens when, parentheses, values plus behavior, close parentheses, times consistency. And to me, that's the that is the the simple formula for creating a or, or for being able to establish a, a culture where, you know, we love it that and, and we, we, we see that imagine a place where people go to work every day. They make a contribution to something bigger than themselves. They learn something new. They feel safe, are set free, and are protected by a compelling set of values, and they go home happy. That's what we work on. So if you, if you have a compelling set of values and they're understood, and people understand that they're not there to constrain them, they're there to set them free. And you love and care enough about the people in your organization, as Bob Chapman would say, everybody is someone's precious child, to not only applaud them for doing great work, but to also be able to redirect the behavior that's hurting them that they can't see. That's why we call our, our leaders coaches. And what's the job of a coach? A coach's job is not to play on the playing field. The coach's job is on the sideline, in the locker room, big ears open, listening, listening to what the people are, listening to who they are, and helping them step into the best version of their personal self. So this is simple. It's not easy. And time is not your friend, but you've got to be committed to it. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm consciously incompetent and probably wrong and roughly right at most things. So I need a lot of help. And that's why we have, you know, what we have at WD-40. So um, 
I'm curious around, um, and and I've been like I've been spending a good portion of the afternoon. I got so engaged in the stuff you're doing. It's like I've got a crush on your company, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> me too. I, I really, it's like you'll see my application there. So uh, the, but seriously, um, you know the. I, I was so intrigued around your your approach to coaching and leadership. Can you can you just talk about that? I mean, you have a really unique way of thinking about learning. You say there's no mistakes in your company. You talk about moments of learning, but you engage your team your your coaches in 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 your learning strategy. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we're servant leaders. Um, you know, I don't have a job. I have a purpose, and my purpose is to serve. And um, that's the way I think about it. And, you know, we don't make mistakes. We, we have learning moments. Uh, one of the things that, you know, pour cold water on creativity and fear and entrepreneurialism is people are afraid of failure. So we took the word failure out. So we have learning moments. And a learning moment has a definition. A learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that has to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. So... You know, we say that we we really flourish in these opportunities to learn. And, um, you know, one of our tribal attributes, the number one attribute of a tribal leader is to be a learner and a teacher. You know, I talk about that a lot. You know, imagine going back, you know, you took us in the in, in the Lorian time machine. I'll take you back to thousands of years ago in the middle of Australia. And here we had the Indigenous Australians. And what was the, the role of the tribal leader? The role of the tribal leader was to teach the young tribe members to throw a boomerang. Why? Because if they couldn't throw a boomerang, they wouldn't survive. So our job as leaders is to help people be great boomerang throwers, whatever the boomerang is on the day. So, you know, we're always learning and we're always teaching. Well, James well, so is phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The, <laughs> so, you know, I took the maniac pledge. Oh, good. Today, and, um, I, and I put it on my social media because... I'm such a I'm, I'm such a fanatic myself about this whole idea of self accountability. Could you kind of expand what what if you could maybe just talk a bit about the Maniac Pledge? But what brought sure. you what brought you to it, Gary? What and how did you introduce it into WD forty and how has it landed? Sure. So the Maniac Pledge basically says, and it starts off with three words: I am responsible. I am responsible for taking actions. I'm responsible for asking questions. I have no right to be offended if I didn't get this sooner. If there's something I should know about, I should tell someone else. So how did it come about? Many years ago, uh, I was traveling around the world and I got back to our, our office in San Diego and one of the, the tribe members there um, you know, kind of approached me and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really angry. So well, I'm sorry, you're angry. Anger's not a good thing. What's the problem? He said, well, this, 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 I should have known about it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, it, and it's a bit like, this person kind of nearly had a little bit of the attributes of who, who Al is. I don't know if you've met Al yet, the soul-sucking CEO, but um, <laughs> Al is – actually, hang on a minute. Here he is. This is Al. There he is. Yeah. Soul-sucking Al, yeah. He's the soul-sucking CEO. And anyhow, one of Al's attributes is, you know, he's, he's corporate royalty. You know, he should be told everything first. And anyhow, I, I thought, this is crazy. If you would have taken as much time finding out what you didn't know and sharing it with someone else, you wouldn't have ha held all this anger in your, in your body 
for a week or so till I got back, I wouldn't be getting, you know, getting this feedback from you and we all would have been better. So what became clear to me is I had to give people permission. So we came up with the Maniac Pledge. Here's your permission. Everybody takes it now. Everybody is part of the Maniac Pledge. So it's it's the permission to ask questions, be curious, but also commitment to telling others. Because as a tribe, we are a group of people that come together to protect and feed each other. It's not about me, me, me. It's about us. So we want to excel as individuals, but we want to thrive as a tribe. And that's really what our whole culture is about. So could I just ask you on a practical basis, um, uh, I just love the pledge. When do, when do people take it and how do they get refreshed and how does that, how does it, how does it translate into your daily work? Yeah, um, it's part of our onboarding. We share it with people. And then because we're using it in the corp, in the company all the time, it becomes normal. It becomes part of, you know, it's, we have it on placards, but I don't like placards that much because I want it on coffee stained pizza pieces of paper that people are using every day. But it, I don't think a day would go by when a number of people in the company wouldn't say, hey, Maniac Pledge, I, I want to I want to know about that or Maniac Pledge should tell you about that. So it's it's embedded in our culture. And you've done such, you know, I, and, and I and I'm you know I'm I'm a student of this, so I just love the way you've connected the Maniac Pledge with your values, with your mission, with your purpose. And they're so clearly stated there, Gary, you've done such a great job. And then you get tribal members to communicate it as well. But you've really done a great job of connecting those pieces together because sometimes they get they can confuse people. But can you talk about your purpose is so unique. I don't know if I've read a purpose statement that talks about memories. The way way yours does, and could you could you fill us in? It's such an intriguing piece of work. You're obviously a Simon Sinek fan, but what? Wh wh how did how did that evolve? Yeah, Simon's a good friend of mine. We got we met each other about ten years ago. Now we're on a panel together at a conference, and uh, he was talking about the theory of of an of the the infinite game, and I was talking about the practical side of you know really understanding our people. We hit it off and. And uh, I love his work. And, you know, as he said, most companies know what they do. Some know how they do it. Not a lot of know, people know why they do what they do. Well, you know, we want to have a purpose. And, and you know, if you think about it, we just sell oil in a can. And, and, but that's not true. We exist to create positive, lasting memories, solving problems in factories, homes, and workshops around the world. We solve problems and we create opportunities. Our just cause is we make life better at work and at home. We make life better at work for the people who work for WD-40 company and when they're at work and when they go home and for the people who use it. So, you know, memories, it really is part of the essence of our product because I don't know about you, but I can remember when I was a young kid or I was 16 years old in Australia, I'd had a Mini 850. It was a Morris Mini 850. It had an east-west motor. The distributor was in the front. And if we'd go out on a Saturday and I'd drive through water, you could be guaranteed that that distributor would get water in it. And if I wanted to start that Mini up again, I had a problem. My dad, I, mem I remember him saying to me, I'll show you how to fix that, son. My dad was an engineer. He got a can of WD-40. He opened it up. He said, this is how you fix it. I can still smell it. I can still remember it. 
that's where it started for me. And yeah. I've got thousands of stories like that from all over the world. I, I just had a beautiful experience just a week or two or three ago, I can't remember, but I, I got a letter and it started off with this, you won't remember me, but. And it was someone that I'd, I'd heard me speak at a conference about 18 months ago, I think it was in Orlando, Florida. And I was really challenging people in the audience, if you're not being fulfilled by the place you work at, if your values aren't being met, if you're not going home happy, you deserve to be happy. Be happy now. Well, they took my advice, I guess, and they left that job and went somewhere else. And he's now very happy. But he said to me the other day, I was on the way home in the car and I had my 10-year-old daughter with me. And we stop at a hardware store to, to buy a can of WD-40 because I'm needing to, to rejuvenate my bicycle because I'm riding a lot more now. And she's got a bicycle as well. So we're back in the shed now. And I, I asked her, do you know what this is? And she said, some sort of oil stuff, Dad, as she tore herself away from her iPhone. And he, he sprayed it on a rag and she said, smell this. And she smelt it. And they fixed the bike together. And he said to her, I'll tell you something. You'll never forget that smell. And you'll never forget the day you and I were here together working on this bike together. That's the memory we created. What a great story. So tell us about the um, bus driver in India that got the python out from under. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually Hong Kong. It was, was actually Hong Kong. Okay. It was in Hong Kong. Yeah, there was a python snake that had become in, sort of entangled in the, in the um, suspension and they couldn't get it. It was stuck and they couldn't get it out. So they sprayed some WD-40 down the suspension, which ran down. It freed the python and the python uh, scurried off into the hillside of, of Hong Kong. So you know, many, many interesting, interesting uh, stories. Who would have known that um, WD-40 um, was a emergency medicine uh, aid for help for a python and everything <laughs> exactly. else, right? <laughs> It's funny you talk about the stories and I mean I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan here in Canada and, and one of my fondest memories is and you know using that the scent all your senses to create experiences from a brand perspective right um, but I can remember as a child you know my job on the farm when I was younger was that I had to fill up all the tractors and the grain trucks and everything with diesel and oh, yeah. to this Day, the smell of diesel Jeez. takes me back in time to those wonderful memories with my dad and my mom on the farm. And, and you know, at the time, I didn't think they were wonderful memories because they were, you know, stopping me from doing all the things that I wanted to do as a kid. But it is a really a great way to use the sensory to create brand loyalty and brand awareness, right? Because then people know about it. So how do you you know, share those stories with other people and find those stories because that to me is the gold in your brand is about yeah, the it's, story. Absolutely. It's authentic. And, you know, I'll tell yeah. you something. Um, WD-40 is a secret formula, as you may know. You know, there were 39 formulas that didn't work. The 40th one worked. We never yeah. patented it. So it's a trade secret. We've never disclosed the formula. One of the secret ingredients is actually the fragrance. We actually add that fragrance as wow. a century fragrance to WD-40. So, you know, uh, but how do we share it? Back in the year 2000, was interesting. We went out to our end users and we, we, we um, 
uh, ran a contest and said, said, tell us your yeah. favorite use for WD-40 and why. We got over 245,000 entries. And on our website, there's a list of 2,000 uses for WD-40. Um, yeah. You'll see now as social media has become, you know, such a part of what we do, um, our, our end users continually create use end user content and, and talk about all the wonderful uses. You'll see us on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, even TikTok, I yep. think, uh, although I don't, I don't get into that so much, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, and it is one of those, you know, I travel the world and, you know, I, when people ask me what I do and I say, oh, I, I work for WD-40, without doubt, the first words that come out of their mouth is, oh, I remember when. <laughs> I remember when. Yeah. You know, I'll go through customs and immigration and I'll give them my passport and I'll say, what are you, WD-40? Oh, they're having a chat with me, particularly when I go through the UK as well. <laughs> it's like, oh, WD-40, I've got a camera, blah, blah, blah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Well, I happen to have a picture of, of a use of WD-40 with uh, Max the Wonder Dog and Maria. Can I share? Uh, yeah, sure. There he is. Yes, that's Max the Wonder Dog. And that's my wife, but Maria. WD-40 on the barbecue. So what's the relation between the barbecue and Max? Well, Max the Wonder Dog is always supervising me. And, of course... The WD-40 on the barbecue is me. Uh, one of the great uses for WD-40 is to shine stainless steel. So being an Aussie, I have to have the best-looking barbecue in the street, right? So you'll find me out there when I've cleaned down the barbecue. I spray some WD-40 on a rag, and I wipe it all over the stainless steel. It takes off any of the, the marks. It stops calcium and you know build up from uh, water when it's outside. And uh, i got to have Max there to help me, Max the Wonder Dog. Yeah, yeah. That's well, that, and, and Lauren had a story about um, when he was working with, with Alberta Treasury Branch um, about a particular dog that became part of the culture um, from a CEO. And so I, I think that, you know, share, share that story, Lauren. Um, I'm curious to see if you have something similar that you do uh, within your culture, Gary. Well, the previous guest uh, on our inaugural show actually was the CEO of uh, ATB Financial. ATB is one of the top companies, number one company to work for in Canada. 5,000 people are over right now by the Great Place to Work organization. Anyway, Dave um, decided to adopt um, a dog with wings um, lab and, and spent, spent a year, a little over 18 months of his life as a CEO. You can imagine, Gary, traveling around, although his was a little bit more localized traveling than yours, but everywhere. Uh, bringing that dog on dog along with them as as that dog became capable to actually help help uh, to, it was they trained the dogs for uh, people with disabilities in this case that dog, yeah so it was a great uh, the whole culture fell in love the whole province actually an entire province fell in love with this dog named Vaughn and I think he became more popular than Dave did it was a beloved CEO <laughs> anyway, well yeah. he's funny he's funny should mention that alone when when I have put a few pictures of Max up on LinkedIn and they always get more comments than me, yeah. pictures of me. And I can yeah. understand that. You know, I have a great, great face for radio, not a great face for LinkedIn. Oh, hey, I worked with a, with, a, um, with a marketing company one time a, a few years back. And, and one of the things that they said is, is listen, if you want to increase your awareness on your social feeds, post pictures of dogs, dogs and cats, <laughs> but dogs even more than cats. So yeah. everybody loves dog, right? So how, you know, how can you not love the dog? 
Absolutely. Hey, Gary, you, you've built up this system and I'm, I really, I, I just love the whole system and it's tied to your whole business strategy. And I'm curious too, as you bring in more acquisitions and uh, you're bringing on, you're growing your brand and your people. And you're much more than that, even though it's still the red can, the can with the red top, you're much more than that now. However, if you were, uh, and a lot of times CEOs talk to me and go, where do I start? So when you're sitting there quietly in the green room at one of these conferences or you're with your YPO friends or whatever, and they say to you, Gary, I, I don't know, I don't feel where my culture's right. How, what, what do you advise them? How do they, how do you advise you know, what do I do next? How do I think about it? What do you say? Look in the mirror first. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, true leadership is when empathy eats your ego instead of ego eating your empathy. So it all starts with you. And, you know, I, I am fortunate enough, back when I was given the privilege to lead WD-40 company in, uh, in 1997, I went back to school. I went to the University of San Diego. I did a master's degree in leadership. My uh, professor, one of my professors, uh, was Ken Blanchard, uh, the, 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 the king of, I guess, of servant leadership, the one-minute manager. Um, and Ken and I um, became great mates. Uh, um, I was on the board of his company then for 10 years after that. Um, he's 81. He was over at the house here last weekend with Margie and we were having a, a socially distanced uh, dinner, but then we got together in my casita and we did a little tape. But, you know, it, it, I, I learned a few things. Micromanagement is not scalable. Um, the three most important words I've ever learned in my life are I don't know and getting comfortable with them is really, really important. Um, and, you know, you need, the, you need to understand that, you know, if you're probably wrong and roughly right in most circumstances, you're going to have people surround you to help you be successful. If you treat them with respect and dignity, um, I read something of the Dalai Lama's very early in my time of leadership at WD-40, and it says that our purpose in life is to make people happy. If we can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And organisations that have you know, 30 and 25% employee engagement, where they're sending those people home frustrated and, and unhappy, the leadership are not doing their role. You know, that's not our job is to, to we can be better than that. So back then I, I made a commitment. I said, you know, I have a dream. I would like to be able to create an organizational culture, not on my own, but with the help of others, where people can go home happy and we can make a difference in their lives. And um, you know, another great book that I read, and everyone should read it, is Everything You Need to Know You Learn in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgram. And it teaches the simple things of life. Say please and thank you. Pick up after yourself. If you go out of a night, take someone with you. Clean up your own mess. Don't steal. You know, these simple things. And, uh, and if we do that um, and we have a clear purpose, we have a clear set of values, certainly in organization, you have to have a a good strategy and you have to be bold at execution, but you can have a wonderful strategy. Let's say on a score of one to a hundred, your strategy was scored at 80, really high. Yep. But let's say the will of the people was 10 or your employee engagement was 10. What's your, out, what's your output? 10 times 80 is 800. But if, you're, if you had employee engagement at 80 or the will of the people at 80 and the strategy of 80, 80 times 80 is a lot more than 800. 
And you know, Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I say culture with a high will of the people is a breakfast feast. That's great. That I've never heard it described that way. I, I, I that is, um, you know, intuitively I know it. Um, you know, from professionally, I've, uh, you know, I've led that kind of thinking and conversation. That's a great way to describe it. If you and I, or and uh, Lisa and our and our audience, we're going to walk into a company, and we didn't have much time, and it wasn't the COVID, and we could actually walk in, Gary, and we only we had a day. And you were deciding whether you were going to make an acquisition and then you wanted to make it just the, all you had was just sort of the tactile and the observations around whether the will, the will and the engagement was high. What would you be looking for real quick? What would be the, what would be some just indicators that people might not normally look at, but you'd be looking at? Well, firstly, I don't even have to walk in the company to do that. I'd be in the parking lot half an hour before starting time. And I'd be watching how people arrived at the office. Were they there? Were they walking in? Were they greeting each other? Were they coming in right at nine o'clock or were they in a little bit early? Were they giving people high fives as they went in? Was people, were people, so I can start even before going in to see what the culture's like. Is this a place where people, imagine a place where you want to go to work because yeah. you're making the contribution. And then walking around, you can soon feel the culture of an organization. Are there smiles on people's faces? Are they laughing and joking? You know, uh, is it open or do you walk up and there's the big CEO's office, the one in the corner, four times the size of anyone else with the door shut with two assistants in front and guards. Don't come in here. You know, I can't go in here. Or is or are the leaders wandering around, running into each other, you know, talking to each other, engaging with each other? You know, right, one of the things that's going on with COVID right now is we're, we're drawing down on what I call tribal equity. We've got high tribal equity. So in these times, we've got to ensure that we keep topping up the tribal equity. So right now, we've got to be communicating more and more. You know, we, we just had our 67th birthday last week, WD-40 company was 67 years old. We had the magic of WD-40. We had a global magic show virtually. You know, this week we're having a comedy hour. You know, we're having our French team got together, <clears throat> excuse me, and virtually they, they cooked dinner together virtually. Um, you know, we're encouraging all of this stuff because we've got to keep topping up that 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 tribal equity. I love that, and that's a great inspiration for <coughs> so many people who think that they're stuck in this remote environment and can't do that. I mean, you're putting your same intentionality in this remote situation as you are if you were in your San Diego campus. Or, although I'm a little suspicious that you chose your office in Lyon for Epicurean reasons. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> I had an office have, one time too, so I, I I get it. French takeout is about as like a giant cuisine uh, six course meal in San Diego. I'm telling you, it's, I know. Oh, uh, yeah. I, have, I have a question for you, Gary. You know, now we're moving into more of a rather than everybody's coming through the front door, like as you know, as Apple talks about, everybody has to come through the front door because they they believe in collisions and great things happen at that front door in those collisions. But we're really moving into a space of work from anywhere. And how do how do you over how do you see leaders really taking a step forward and creating you know psychologically safe places and places to belong in a work from anywhere environment? Well, it's a, firstly work from anywhere is a choice, and I don't think it's it's an either it's not an either or it's a both and. 
Um, yeah. our, our facility we built in San Diego that we moved into three years ago, we purposely built it with collision zones, the same as the yeah. office we just opened in Milton Keynes, north of London. And we didn't invest $30, $40 million, so no one would go there. So, you know, I think we will be better in person because we are better virtual now. So it's not an either or. It's not, you know, you're either at the office or at home, but it's a both yeah. and. We're going to be both. We're going to be where we need to be. But <clears throat> you don't you don't create great mentoring moments over the using virtual. You don't have those impromptu coaching moments. You've got to have them. So yeah. we will not be going totally virtual. We will be back in our um, in our what we call our TP and our MK hall and other offices. But when we're not there, and some of us will be there a little less if if that's okay. But when we're not there, we're going to be a lot better being virtual. So when we do come together, it's even going to be richer. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Yeah. So, Gary, one of the things that this is a little bit selfish around testing an ethos, uh, and I just want to get your thinking about it. Um, we, um, we believe that um, there's an evolution from diversity to inclusion to belonging. And uh, belonging is... Um, become even more deeply it's it's a it's a sort of a part of our human nature to deeply want to belong but it's going to take on greater importance in in organizations going forward and i just wanted to get your take on that well that's why we call ourselves a tribe not a team it's based on maslow's hierarchy to self-actualization and the first two rungs of that are basically can i survive and am i safe the third one is belonging or love and if you don't have belonging, you know, everybody who's listening to this program or watching us today have left a company, an event, an organization, or even a relationship because they didn't feel like they belong. So belonging is deeply needed. And it's been, it's been one of the, the, the foundations of, and again, why we call ourselves a tribe. You know, you, you belong to a tribe. You play on a team. So, um, and we are we are tribal in nature. It, it started at the beginning of mankind with Ugg the the, the caveman, right? And uh, yeah. so, yeah, belonging is is so important. Uh, well, and you, you see, know, a, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I have a no, delay. No. I was just going to say, you see it really heavily in sports, right? I'm from Saskatchewan, and anybody in Canada knows that you know, rider pride. You know, we stick watermelons on our head for God's sakes because we want to belong and we live and eat and breathe rider pride, right? We see that in lots of different sports teams. And so, if you were to give an entrepreneur who really who was looking at how do I create a sense of belonging in my company when I'm I don't have hundred or a thousand or five thousand uh, people what would be your first piece of advice to really help that entrepreneur create a safe place where people really feel like they belong be authentic be vulnerable speak to your people yeah. listen to them treat them with respect and dignity say please and thank you you know profit is the applause of people doing great work some people unfortunately don't only know they're doing a good job because no one yelled at them today you know um, <laughs> yeah. you know be Bring, bring gratitude. For a great friend of mine, Chester Elton, who wrote The Carrot Principle, he's just released a new book called Bleeding with Gratitude. Um, and I suggest every entrepreneur read that book because if you lead with gratitude, you will, you will win the hearts of the people as long as you're authentic, as long as you're yeah. authentic. Yeah. Gary, you're in your, uh, 
it's common knowledge you're in your 60s. Um, and really? I, I can just tell. <laughs> that, um, I, I can just tell that you're um, that you're a consummate learner. Uh, uh -huh. I mean, you're, I could probably, even though you you probably do have a TikTok uh, dance move. Um, what? Um, what? So, what do you expect out of your out of out of your tribe around having continuous growth, sort of in a disruptive mindset? How do you how do you instill that? What are your what's what's your expectation? Oh well, we 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 embed it in the organisational culture. Um, we have a a program in the company called Leadership Lab, um, where we actually teach the attributes of leadership. The program that I did at, at USD, which I was in the first cohort in 21 years ago, uh, the Master of Science in Executive Leadership. We've put 35 people through that. We have 35 people with master's degrees in leadership in the company, full rides, and one of the one of the uh, the, the um, requirements of that is once they graduate from this master's program, they become part of our internal faculty. So we actually have an internal faculty that now teaches attributes of servant leadership across the company. I think at last count, in the last five years, we've had, I think it's 36,000 hours globally of leadership training that we've done with our tribe members around the world. Um, so yeah, we... I teach at USD. I teach uh, culture now in that one program. I also teach at UPenn and at San Diego, uh, SD, uh, uh, San Diego State University. I, I'm, I'm a guest lecturer there, but I actually teach. I'm an adjunct professor at USD, and um, you know, I, I, it's just part of what we do. I mean, we are a learning organization. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was curious about. Sorry, Lisa. I just, uh, um, I just. Mm -hmm. So many organizations call them learning organize themselves learning organizations that I call bullshit a little bit on them mm -hmm. because uh, you know year after year you see the same issues and I go how do you describe yourself as a learning organization when you there's this continual repetition of the same uh, problems and I notice that you put a lot of attention to learning in the moment and these moments of learning. How do you do that? How do you bring this practical kind of coaching and learning to your institution? You, you reward it. You know, you reward what you get. So by taking the word failure out of our vocabulary yep. and replacing it with learning moments, we're always asking each other, what was your learning moment? What did you learn from that today? Is there any, you know, I have a list here of all of my learning from COVID, here it is. And I'm sharing that and I don't know how many there are there. Some of these are new learnings. Some of them are learnings that were dormant and I've just become aware of them again. And some of them are old ones that we needed to bring back in. But you know, the first one is in times of great and real need, people can pivot around fear, practice pragmatic optimism, be vulnerable, um, stay centered as possible. Have, have clear boundaries, be present, be mindful, be ill, be a giver, not a taker. You know, and we are, we are just having the best fun right now in looking at all of the things that are different. You know, what we, we, we started this process of COVID of saying we need to stabilize, stabilize, secure, reset and thrive. So we question ourselves, you know, what are our beliefs today versus what our beliefs were in February? Because our beliefs have changed yeah. because our environment's changed. And we have to reset and go forward in a new way or keep going the way we were going. So we're always – and it's it's not – one of our values 
drive this. Do you know one of our values is we value making it better than it is today. That's one of our six values. Yeah. And our values are hierarchical. So we're always asking, how can we make this better than it is today? And that yeah. curiosity drives learning. I was going to say, so I was, that was just going to be my next question, Gary, is how um, embedded do you believe that intelligent curiosity? So people are curious intellectually by nature, right? They know, they see what's in front of them and they want to know more about what's in front of them. But I beg to the argue the argument that intelligent curiosity is really when you want a really true deep understanding about what's outside of what you can see in order to really truly get a better understanding and a grasp on what you're trying to achieve. So curiosity purely will help drive the business. But how do you allow your people, your tribe, to investigate curiosity and bring curiosity to the table? Because lots of people are afraid to actually be curious and ask questions because they're, they're not in a safe place to do that. So how do you make it safe for them in order to be curious? Well, you know, part of the circle of safety is you as the leader have got to be vulnerable. You don't have all the answers. You know, yeah. I mentioned Al before, you know, one of the behaviors of Al, the soul-sucking CEO, is he has all the answers. So no one's going yeah. to give him any answers because he's always right. And you can't. Yeah. You're not always right. So you've got to be vulnerable. You've heard me say, I've said it a million times, I am probably wrong and roughly right in most circumstances. So just that on its own gives people permission. You know, and so many people just pour cold water on on people by turning them off and not allowing them that freedom. So, you know, we don't have all the answers. Um, I, I, I was born, you know, not so smart. And, uh, and that's been a, a gift that I was given. One of the things I'm really interested in is, um, you know, I've been, uh, I've been lots of, lots, way more meetings than I probably ever want to in my life. Um, and, but I'm curious around, I, I got a feeling your meetings, your C-suite meetings are a little bit different. What do you, what, what's, what's, what happens at your C-suite meetings? I, de I don't say anything. <laughs> Leaders speak last. You know, they're, they're, these are not meetings. These are collaborative exchanges. Um, but they're also exchanges where we can be, you know, we can ask ourselves the tough questions. We can ask ourselves the, the curious questions. No one's going to be punished for, there's no such thing as a dumb question. So, you know, we, we have, and we don't call ourselves the C-suite either. That's the other thing. It's, you know, our senior leadership group is called the the, the Global Tribal Council. So, you know, again, um, when we built our building in San Diego, every office in the building is the same size, 10 by 12, mine included. Every office, if you do have an office, is glass-fronted, no blinds. You know, I didn't even want to put doors on the, on the offices, but I got someone convinced me we should do that because we want to lock stuff away occasionally. But, you know, you've got to create the environment where people feel free to be able to communicate. I yeah. communicate with, with our tribe every morning. I send out an email every morning for today from, and it's usually from somewhere around the world, but for the last 39 or 40 weeks, it's for today from Poway, which is where I live in California. And I send out a, a, an inspirational message every morning to make sure we're connecting with people and communicating with people and asking them the questions. So, uh, go, like go, 
Oh, sorry, Lauren. I was just going to say, I think that um, that principles that you're talking about, I mean, I know, I know that Lauren asked you about, you know, how do you lead your meetings in, in the C-suite and you don't say anything, but I think that is for anybody, whether you're a, a leader in the C-suite or like you said, you're an entrepreneur, allowing your people to actually speak first and you last really is a, is a great way to find and encourage uh, new methods of thinking and, and possibilities for new opportunities, right? Yeah. You know, Marshall Goldsmith uh, wrote a great book. It's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm -hmm. The 20 Bad Habits of Leaders. And, you know, one of the things, the, the, one of the, the, the bad habits is adding too much value. And we, those that are successful want to continue to add too much value. And what does that mean? I mean, someone's in the meeting and they come up with a great idea. And, you know, what is really a great idea? But, you know, Al has to add value. And he says, well, you know, Lauren, that was a really good idea. However, if you just <laughs> change that a little bit there, I think it would be a much better idea. Yeah. And what happens? The, the, idea, the value of the idea goes up 1%. The will of Lauren to to execute that goes down fifty percent because you've wanted Al's wanted to add too much value. Yeah, no, I think everybody should read Marshall's book. I, you know, I, uh, you know, I think that, that I remember that lesson and I've talked to him about it because I think we fall into that trap all the time and we do we suck the we suck that will back and that energy back and I completely agree with you and and you know the the world needs more WD forties. You know that we need these stories and these uh, examples, and you know I'm trying to collect them and speak to them, and and uh, and it's amazing how much you know the world is just we're just not there yet around workplaces the way we can. What, what and and I know you say so much of it comes from the mirror and from ego. What else is getting in the way? What's missing, Gary? Why the hell are we getting more traction on building these great workplaces that people deserve to participate in? Um, because they're playing the, the finite game instead of the infinite game, particularly public companies. You know, they, they believe that, you know, you, you can run companies or build companies in 90-day intervals and you can't. So, you know, I, I think that we played, we built, our goal was to build an enduring company over time. And in the last 20 some years, we've more than quadrupled our revenue. We've 10x our market cap. We've taken our employee engagement from 50 to 93%. And we send uh, the majority of our people home happy. And yeah. that's what it's, and I, you know, I, I, I've thought about this so often during COVID those people that were 70% disengaged in companies right now, they are 70% dramatically disengaged. So the will of the people has gone down substantially. And, you know, if we don't wake up, it's going to happen again. And it's it's not rocket science. Um, you know, yeah. we can do this. And, we, you know, lead business people today touch more people's emotions than anybody else because they're all coming to work. But it's this short-termism. It's this, it's all about me. i got to be the king. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's all about the people. Well, you know, we, we, took our, we took our engagement from 60 in the, in the low 60s to 92%. It's, it's such a dramatic different experience and it's really hard to explain to people sometimes well it is and it isn't 
but you can feel it. You can see it. You, it touches every fabric and, you know, people, you know, it's not like, um, do you think people really deeply resist change? People are uncomfortable with change. Uncomfortable. Um, yeah. We're all uncomfortable because yeah, one of the things that happens in, in, with change is, is uncertainty. And, you know, I, I learned a, a new definition of uncertainty during COVID. Uncertainty is a series of future events that may or may not happen. May or may not happen. And if you think about them, you know, if you had a big circle, you say, this is what may or may not happen. This is what could happen. This is what did happen. And again, you know, in in time of change, the first two pe things people think about is, what are my personal concerns, and what are the information concerns? What what what's going to? And and an, instead of us explaining the why behind the what, we just talk about the what. And you know, there's yeah. evidence out there that people will even do things that they're not completely. I'm not talking of anything that's immoral or, or unethical, but situations they're uncomfortable with. If they know the why, I, why yeah. are we doing this? Yes, you know they can I, see the why. You know, I, yeah. I, I at times I have taken people. You talk about tribe. We at one of the places that I've been working with. There's a real indigenous kind of element to it, and of course, a lot of things happen to start in a circle, right, the right way. And when you get people in that circle to ask about a time in their life when they've had the courage to adapt, you know, Gary, almost everybody has a phenomenal story. We are adapting people. We, 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 if we're given an opportunity to thrive and we know the why, we can almost do anything. Absolutely. So I, and, and it's just, you know, so it's, I know, it's, I know you have to, you know, purpose, like you say, purpose propels. Imagine getting up. Profit doesn't get you up in the morning. Of course, we want to be sustainable and have that profit. I mean, you expect a good EBITDA and a good financial performance, and you do that phenomenally. But like your purpose, this idea of creating memories and smoothing things out everywhere in every factory and every place, man, that's something I can get up and be part of in the morning. But you've got to allow for that to happen. And 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 so what do you say to the skeptics? That's um, I, 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 here's what I say. I'll tell you a little story. This one goes back 15 years. Uh, 15 years ago, we made a decision we were going to open a subsidiary in mainland China. And uh, because there's lots of squeaks in China and we're just the boys and girls to take care of those squeaks. And one day I was in our, our mail room and the lady at the time was in the mail room was um, packing some collateral and stuff to go uh, to, to our office in China. And, and she was kind of grumbling about having to do it. And I told her the, the story. I said, if you knew that what you were doing was helping put shoes on the feet of kids going to school in a little school in China, would that make you feel any different? She said, of course. So I told the story. I'd been to China a number of times and now we'd opened this subsidiary, we've employed some people, you know, we'd, we'd made a difference in people's lives and they were actually able to send their kids to better schools. So there's the purpose. I mean, what we do has an outcome. We've just got to be able to tell people what that outcome is. Everything yeah. we do, you know, I, I, I say to our tribe, we sell our product in 176 countries around the world so everybody gets an opportunity to touch what you do. We help the mechanic fix the car quicker so he can get another car in 
So he's got a profitable business because our final value, our number six value at WD-40 is we value sustaining the WD-40 economy because we don't say we, 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 we want to make a lot of money. We want to sustain the economy. We want to grow the economy because a growing economy then benefits all the constituents in that economy, the people who come to work, the people we serve, the whole deal. So you've got to have a robust economic engine to be able to support the type of organization you have to have to send people home happy. Profit is the applause of people doing good work. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Take care of your people. They'll take care of your customers and your customers will take care of your shareholders. Well, and it's back to the old, my grandfather always said, you know, Lisa, you get what you give. And so, and, and I'm always, you know, I always think about this when I'm working with clients and stuff and they're like, I just, you know, I can't get my team to be productive. I can't get them to do it. And my answer always back is you get what you give. What are you giving? Because what you're giving is what you're receiving. You can't and make so, anybody do anything. Exactly. They have exactly. to want to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, we are with Gary's time here as he's got a couple other calls. Have to wrap up here pretty quick. Gary, I, I you know, there's something just, um, yeah, like um, maybe we should just have you go on before the presidential speech uh, uh, debate next time and maybe you could just talk about it. <laughs> the, the look on your face, Gary, says, no way, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm both a Canadian and American citizen, so I can I can say that. But um, anyway, um, I'm an Australian yeah. citizen and an American citizen. Okay, so I I know, and uh, but you know, you're an inspiration. I mean that, and, uh, and it's just such a good thing for uh, leaders to hear you talk about it because it does inspire them and does them ask them. It, it does get them to say, and that's what we're trying to do here is that people create. We want people to create great cultures, great organizations, and they need more stories and examples like this. And and um, so thank you for being part of our story and, you know, not only giving, I think, inspiration, but also a path and shining a light. If you want to go onto the WD-40 website, if you want to go and dig in, there's lots of stuff that's out there. Man, you've given a tremendous, tremendous roadmap, and I know the recipe has to be unique and genuine but thank you so much gary I, it's been a pleasure personally and professionally and uh and i gotta i gotta remind myself to use that wd-40 to shine up my barbie because i got a pretty damn good barbie too i'm telling you i'm just saying well, well, thank, have, thank you lisa and lauren it's been my absolute well, pleasure and honor to be with you gary, um so my husband works in the oil field here in alberta and i found nine cans of wd-40 <laughs> throughout <laughs> our our house. Thank you again. use the product. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> well, look.